That uh, video you just watched is kind of uh, convicting truth, isn't it? There's kind of a great big gap in the picture we present sometimes and who we really are. Kind of a big gap in who God wants us to be and who we really are. Sometimes there's a big gap in what we present to other people and who we are or what we think of ourselves and the truth too. We're in a series entitled Follow Me and, and it's all about discipleship. It's all about becoming a, a, a genuine Christ follower and we've talked about a myriad of different things this summer and we're kind of winding down today and, and next week and uh, we're going to talk today about authenticity. Uh, following God to be the person that he created you to be rather than the person you may be now because when you get in line behind God, listen to me, he's going to make some changes in your life. He's going to make some alterations. Uh, He's going to be sure uh, if you're listening to him that he speaks truth into your life. And when you're near God, when you're walking with him, Uh, You can't be near that kind of truth, that kind of love, that kind of power, and remain unaffected. So we're going to talk about following God, following Jesus, to a brand new person, a person who is the real you, the person that God created you to be. Now, first of all, uh, I want to say this, you were made. You were created by God with this sole purpose, to follow him. Uh, The scripture uses the word walk, to walk with him. And remember in the Garden of Eden, uh, God created the heavens and earth in chapter 1. He made all that was good. And chapter 2 was a pretty good chapter. Then you get to chapter 3. And that's where women got involved with the apple and, and the women, woman, whatever, you know what I'm saying. Eve caused it and Adam fell for it and God smote them, basically. Now, I'm not blaming women. Women, you've got better over the years. I want to say that. And now I believe men, if the Garden of Eden happened now, I know it would be men who would take the first bite. Paul Hansen and I would be right in line. And... Uh, uh, but before all of that, before all of that, you remember the, the verse that said Adam and Eve and God were walking in the garden in the cool of the evening. Isn't that a beautiful picture? They were just walking with God, talking, sharing stories, companionship. God pointed out a tree and said, didn't I do a good job? animals, just a beautiful time of communion. And, and even after the fall and you start to read Genesis, it, it says things like this, God was with Abraham and he became a man of faith. There's a guy named Enoch. What's the Bible say about him? One characteristic about Enoch, it said this, he walked with God. He walked with God. Eventually, he walked a little further, or they walked a little further than they'd walked before, and they were closer to God's house than Enoch's house. Bible says Enoch never died. He just walked with God into heaven. 
He walked with Isaac, the Bible says. He walked with Joseph. And here's where it starts to get interesting. Uh, Joseph, kind of an arrogant guy, doesn't say he was a Baptist, but it says he was arrogant, cocky, and had this really cool coat. I'd like a coat like that, wouldn't you? The coat of many colors. And when he wore it, he looked so good in it that his brothers got jealous. Anybody but me have that problem? And his brothers threw him in a pit and sold him to the Egyptians. He was in slavery in Egypt. What the Bible says, God was with Joseph when he was a slave. He ends up in jail. God was with Joseph, the Bible records, while he was in jail. And so the good news is that as we walk through life, whether or not we're walking to the right places or the wrong places, whether or not it's a time of victory or a time of loss, a time of freedom or a time of incarceration, a time when we're doing all the right things, or doing all the wrong things, God is walking with us. And that's discipleship. And in our primary responsibility as a Christ follower, as a believer, and those of you who haven't made that choice, here's what your choice or your responsibility is going to be when you do come to Christ, is simply to be present with Him. Just to be where God is, just to be present with Him. Can I be honest with you? When, when, I, when I start to talk about walking with God and being present with Him, the, the reality, of, in my life at least, and I suspect yours, is I want that. I, I want to be where I ought to be and do the things that I ought to do and say the things that I ought to say. I want that. I, I want to be a disciple but there are, are, are lots of times, I, I don't want to say daily because I don't want you to come over to my house and watch me, but there are lots of times I take wrong turns, right? Don't you? And it's almost like I rebel against God's presence. I rebel. Bible calls it backsliding because we don't want to be too close to God. We don't want his presence around us when we're making mistakes. And so there's a great big gap, I think, in most of our lives. There's a great big gap between following Christ and being who we want to be and who we really are. And I think there's another convoluted idea that that sort of reigns in our hearts and minds, and we, we, we bought into this, that, that if we're going to follow Christ, if we're going to follow him and be that disciple, that we have to manufacture good works. We have to just kind of be better and, and do good things and be right loving and helpful and yada, yada, yada. We've got to just kind of make that happen in our own lives. But here's the reality. 
That's not discipleship at all. That's just you trying to do things you can't do by yourself because you can never be good enough, wise enough, strong enough, powerful enough, loving enough to live up to the standards of God. Amen? I had three folks in the first service who said amen no matter what I said. Somebody's got to jump in here. But the only good in us is Christ in us. And so it's not, I'm going to get good enough, I'm going to be good enough to be a disciple and follow him. It's you start to follow him and see what remarkable, miraculous, amazing, good, wonderful things start to happen in your life. Don't get the cart before the horse. Now, I, I talked about that gap in our lives between who we are in Christ and who we really are. And, and I want to tell you, at least in my personal experience, and I think for many of you, that gap is caused by trying to please the wrong people. It's a guy named Jacob, uh, Abraham, Isaac, then Jacob, then Joseph. We missed him before. Because nowhere in the Scripture does it implicitly say God was with Jacob. You see God working on Jacob a lot, put him to sleep and had him climb a ladder and all that kind of stuff. You remember Jacob's story. Jacob was a twin. Anybody here a twin? You're the best looking of the group? Yeah. Well, Jacob, here's what's kind of interesting about he and his twin Esau. Jacob was born seconds later than Esau. And uh, Esau, in that culture, it was important because Esau became the oldest son and the son who would inherit the, you know, the most of whatever Isaac and Rebekah left behind. Now, Esau was kind of like me. A rugged man's man, tough guy, outdoorsman. You know, you saw him and you thought, there's a man. And I don't really appreciate y'all laughing right now <laughs> at all. That's Esau. And you, you know, just ugh, macho. That's not a common word now, but you know what I'm saying. And Jacob was not. Uh, Kent's not here. <laughs> you know, let's say Jacob was kind of like Kent. We keep it to ourselves, okay? Nobody going to tell? So, you know, he kind of hung out in the house with his mom. Doesn't say he played music. I wish he did. That would make the story better. But, you know, he was a mama's boy. The Bible says several times that... Uh, was Rebecca's favorite, and Esau was, uh, was Isaac's favorite. And uh, Jacob was crafty, and uh, he knew Esau was out on a hunt, and he knew that he was really hungry, and so he made some stew. Remember, he's, he's a good cook, and this stew, can you imagine how good it must have smelled? Beef and Carrots and onions and taters and 
I mean, whoa, there's nothing better. Cracker Barrel can't even mess up stew, right? And Esau walks in the house, and he heads to the kitchen. That's what us men's men do, man's men, whatever. That's what we do. We head to the kitchen, and he smelled that smell, the aroma, tantalizing. Give me some stew, Jacob. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Doesn't it smell good, though, brother? And he holds out. Isn't it amazing what motivation holding out can be? What you can accomplish? He holds out until Esau said, I will give you my birthright for your stew. I have never been that hungry. Have you? He trades his birthright for the stew, for a bite to eat. How many of you have changed some, traded something eternal for something temporary? How many times have you given up something that really mattered for something that mattered very little? Then you understand Esau. Isaac older, not seeing well. Jacob kind of dressed up like Esau would be dressed up. And Isaac bestows the birthright. Esau realizes what's happened. Anger sets in, threatens to kill Jacob. Rebekah says, Jacob, I've got a plan. Now, only in Kentucky is this plan understandable. And you'll see why in just a minute. Only in Kentucky is this plan understandable because Rebecca sends Jacob to his uncle's, her brother, a guy by the name of Laban's house, to live. And while he's at his uncle's house, he goes shopping for a wife. How many of you have gone to a family reunion here in Kentucky and tried to pick up a man or a woman? before you left. Anybody? You're not going to raise your hand on this one, are you? So it's kind of a weird story in of itself, isn't it? He's gone to his uncle's house to find a wife, and he spies his uncle's youngest daughter, a lady by the name of Rachel. She must have been mesmerizing, is all I can say. She must have been so amazingly beautiful. She must have had eyes like that. Uh, She must have been all that. Okay? Can, Can we stop at that? And he falls in love. Falls in love. And he goes to his uncle Laban, who is a shifty character himself, and he said to him, can I have the hand of my cousin, your daughter, beautiful Rachel? And Uncle Laban said, yeah, but I need you to work for me for seven years. Anybody here had to work that long for a wife? Some of you still are, right? Yeah, I meant some of us, excuse me. Uh, seven years. Wedding time comes. They say their I do's. He's thinking, I'm finally out of here. And here's why I'm against veils in weddings. No surprises. He lifts the veil, 
to kiss Rachel, but it isn't Rachel. It is her older sister. <laughs> her older sister, Leah. Or Leah. However you want to pronounce that name. The Bible said this about her. She had crazy eyes. What it means is she was homely. Can you imagine? I mean, you lift the veil and you're expecting beauty and you get crazy eyes. I don't know how he kept his, his feet underneath. Eventually, he goes back to his uncle and said, what'd you do? Well, she was my oldest and had to marry my oldest before I could marry my youngest, and yada, yada, yada. But if you will work seven more years, you can have Rachel. Bible says that's what he did. That's how much he wanted her. That's how much. After that seven years, he got to marry this person he thought he had to have. Fourteen years. And I, and I consider Jacob's life. And let me tell you what I think was going on with him. I think he wanted the approval of his father that he never got. So he did underhanded things and, and, and made bad choices to get that approval. I think he was always striving and trying to manipulate and trying to uh, just get things that he thought would make him happy. If you read the rest of, of the love story of Jacob and Rachel and Leah, you'll see in the Scripture that neither of the marriages went very well. Found really no joy from those relationships. And so I would submit to you this morning that at least in my experience, and I, and I would suggest in yours, that when you're following God, but instead of trying to earn his approval, you spend all of your time trying to get the approval of people. You make choices and life choices and, and, and smaller choices where you're constantly trying to get people to like you, to love you, to approve of you. And you lose your path. His life was empty. So he sought to fill it with what he thought would bring him success and joy. But he never seemed to get to the place where he was happy and at peace and comfortable. You see, I think many, many, many of us lose our way and don't become the Christ followers that we ought to be because instead of desiring to honor God and to please God, we spend all of our time and all of our activity and make our choices based upon, if I do this, will this person like me? If I do this, will I be popular? If I do this, will, will folks approve of me? I think it happens in every area of our life. I went shopping last night with Tyler. Uh, I wasn't aware that school was starting next week because school shouldn't start until after Labor Day. Somebody has misinformed 
our government. But school's starting someday. What, what is it, Wednesday? Teachers have to go back to work. Kids have to go back to school. Life is going to stink. And he needed clothes. Now, where do you go when you go clothes shopping? You know, some of you got it down pat. You, you know, you know where to go to get the best bargains and deals, and just do really well. But Tyler doesn't. <laughs> he he has this desire to look good at school, to be liked, to be admired, to dress well. And so we had to go to a place called the American Eagle. Been there? They put eagles on their pants and their shirts and up them 20 bucks. And, you know, he try them on and twist and turn and look in the mirror just to be sure they fit perfectly. And we're going to take up an offering later for my shopping trip. <laughs> But he looks good. I, he's going to be a good, you know, people are going to like the way he looks. We went downstairs to a place called Abercrombie. That's, in case you don't know about Abercrombie, that's where the guy stands sometimes out in the hall without a shirt. Just pants. I used to have that job. <laughs> Things went south. You see, we dressed today, if not admired, at least to fit in, didn't we? Ladies, you spent a lot of time, foundation, eyeliner, blush, pulled the hairs out of your nose, I mean, all that stuff. So you would look good, be admired, be liked. We don't do what we want to do sometimes. We don't do what God wants us to do sometimes. We, we, we spend a lot of energy and effort trying to please the wrong audience, don't we? I ran an experiment last night. It's actually going on right now. But I decided to shave my face. It's been, I think, 11 years since my face had no mustache or goatee. And I've had comments. Some people have said, I really like that. You look 10 years younger. It's tough being 34. I don't want to look 34. <laughs> and other people, Linda Walker's doing it right now. I don't like it. And I knew that would draw positive and negative vibes. It'll grow back, I hope. But the point is, is that we make choices like that, small things, and we're thinking, how am I going to look to people? And we're so consistent in that kind of choice, Mason, that when it comes to big things, we won't buy a car if we think people are thinking we're too uppity. I drive a Nova. <laughs> we, we, I mean, all of our choices. What will people think about me? 
You can never be a real disciple of Christ if you don't allow God to dictate your choices. You may be following him, but if you're allowing other people and their approval to make you who you are, you're going to lose your way. Let me tell you a couple things that happen when you're a people pleaser. When pleasing people is more important to you than pleasing God. You're destined for mediocrity. Because you'll be here one day and here one day and there one day trying to please this person this day, that person the next day, and another person. And by that time, the first person's changed their mind about what you should have done. And you'll never accomplish anything positive in your life and certainly nothing positive for Christ if all you're thinking about is who's happy with me, who's mad at me, who do I have a problem with, how can I fix it? Secondly, not only will your life be marked by mediocrity rather than marvelous events, you'll also be destined for exhaustion. Our church is the size now where I have lots of calls, lots of requests, lots of burdens, lots of problems. I could spend 24 hours a day ministering to someone who's in need because there's always someone. And sometimes it just wears you out. Sometimes you've got to say no. And others of you are in positions in life where if you do everything to try to make everyone else happy, you'll make yourself miserable and you'll have no life and no vitality. It takes courage to admit your weaknesses, doesn't it? And I think it takes courage because admitting your weaknesses causes you to be transparent and authentic. I can't do that. I'm not very good at it. Brother Todd, have me over to your house to cook. I can't cook. And all of us have things in our life that we try to hide and keep from other people, our weaknesses, our failures, our burdens, our, our, our shameful acts. And look at me. Quit writing, quit thinking, just look at me right now. Every single one of us has a secret or two. Things that we don't want people to know, don't we? And when we keep secrets and we're not authentic, and and we're guilty of that, when, when we do that, when there are things we have to hide, people don't really know us. And you can only be known or or loved to the extent that you're known. Think about that. I'm sitting here looking at Clayton. He made the mistake of sitting down here right in my eyesight. And, you know, I know Clayton pretty well. But I'll bet you there's a couple things he did when he was a boy that he hadn't told me about yet, don't you think? 
That was not the confession I hoped for. There are things that you don't know about me and things that I don't know about you and, 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 and burdens and problems and guilt and, and until we say, you know, here I am. This is where I hurt. This is where I've stumbled. This is where, where I just need your help. We'll never get it. And maybe the saddest notion about being in a church is that we're afraid to be real with each other. We don't trust each other enough. We know there are three or four gossips in the crowd who'll tell everybody, right? I uh, have pastored several churches before here. And once upon a time, I moved to a church where a pastor had been at that church a long time, was really legendary. And he was the kind of guy, in fact, probably pastors of that era were, were generally this way. He uh, kept his private life private and his, you know, he'd show up at church, but you really didn't know anything about him. And he never, and he kind of made it seem like he was high and perfect and powerful and godlike. And then I came to town. And it takes you about 30 seconds to look at me and know that I'm not perfect. And, and I'll sit right here in this chair and tell you that I have done stupid thing after stupid thing after stupid thing. Ah, oh, man. The gap where I ought to be and where I really am is, it's, it's huge. And I'm proud of that. And I wish it weren't true. My first official act as pastor of that church was to meet with a realtor to buy a house. Got to town, went to do that. We're in the car with the realtor, and, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, this lady who goes to our church is going to be my friend, she's going to be my realtor. I'll just talk about me. And, and so we're talking, she's asking me some questions, and I said, we got to be done by 5 o'clock tonight because I'm going to go to the Reba McIntyre concert. And I noticed that she got really quiet. So I took that as a sign that I should say why I was going to go. I said, I am kind of got a major crush on her. I love the way she sings. I love the way she looks. Matter of fact, I have a cardboard cutout of Reba in my basement. She was holding some Lay's potato chips. That kind of messed it up a little bit. But So I told her about that. This lady stops the car. And she said, I'm going to pray for you. (laughs) Because no pastor should go to a concert like that. And no pastor should talk about having a cardboard cut out in his house. I thought, this is going to be a fun church. And, you know, eventually there will be things that happen in all of our lives we won't be able to hide. When I came here to be your pastor, pretty clear to everyone who was in the room that I didn't have a wife and that divorce had happened. 
Pretty clear that I'd had a rocky road, wasn't it? Pretty clear that I needed love and forgiveness and grace as much as each of you did. You see, I don't know that we really ever understand what it means to follow God until we can quit worrying about what people think and care only about what he thinks. When we try to please people, I, it's, it's as simple as just watching folks interact with each other and listening to the, what you're talking about to each other back in the atrium, watching you when certain kind of music is being sung and all those kind of things. You can just tell that there are some people who like this and some people who don't. There are some people who like this sermon right now, and some of you are saying, hurry up. You see, I think God has an extraordinary plan for this church. I know he does. And I think we're on the cusp of living out that plan. I think there's never been a more exciting time to be a part of this congregation. But if we determine that rather than following him, We're going to listen to those who say, I don't like that, and I won't like you if you do that. And if we make decisions as a congregation about what we like rather than what God likes, we'll go backwards until the doors close. And I want you to think about that not just as a church. I want you to think about it in your life. There's a phrase that I want you to write down. It's called soul exhaustion. S-O-U-L, that kind of soul. And some of you are worn completely out in your spirit, in your soul. Not because you haven't been able to follow God but because you've been following everybody else. You want people to like you, but sometimes they just won't. Isn't it better to live for the audience of one? For the one who will not exhaust your soul, but who will freshen it. For the one who will not push you aside when you've fallen. For the one who's with you in prison, who's with you in sin, who's with you in divorce, who's with you when your burdens weigh you down. Isn't it better to live for his approval? You're worn out today. You got secrets today. People that don't like you today and you worry about it, you lay in bed at night and think, she doesn't like like me, and it keeps you from sleeping. 
Bible says this, come unto me, all of you who are weary and burdened. And I will give you the perfect sleep number, bed, mattress, rest. (laughs) You believe that? I do. I've been there. Bible says, take my yoke upon you. In fact, Jesus said this. Follow me. Learn from me. That's discipleship. I'll be gentle with you. I read this verse every deacon's meeting. (laughs) Be gentle with me. Because I'm humble and hard. Find rest for your soul. That's God. That's who I ask you to follow today. You can't make me happy. You can't make half the people in this congregation happy most of the time. But you don't have to make God happy. He loves you just because. And he offers rest. Rest. Salvation. He offers peace. He offers a relationship that will never end. We've blown it. We've lived for the wrong reasons and the approval of the wrong people. But it's not too late to change, is it? Not too late. You're here. I want to invite you in just a minute to the altar. The altar's a place to find him. It's a good place to start. It's a place of, of, of commitment and following. I want to invite you to the communion table. Remember when we put these out here for the first time? Some of you said, oh, we're going to turn into a Catholic church. But isn't it good to be able to walk up and just say to God, God, you moved me in this place today. Thank you for dying for me and loving me and letting me follow you. So you do that today. You've come, come freely. No. There's no safer, better place than when you're next to God or behind him, following him. Trust me. Come to him, and he will give you rest. Father, thank you for what you've done and will do. I know in this room right now are people who are worn out, worn out made choices they shouldn't have made, walked the wrong direction, believed the wrong things, followed the wrong people, looked for approval from the wrong sources. And so we stop right now and pause and and determine in our hearts and minds to follow only you, to care to care deeply about what you feel about us, what you see in us, to believe that your grace is big enough to change anything or anyone, to know as we leave this place that we have purpose and direction, to know that we're headed to heaven because some people aren't sure here today. We commit ourselves following you.
and you alone. In Jesus' name. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing. We're going to pray. And we're going to listen to God. And we're going to go wherever He asks us to go. Might be a tough choice for some of you. But it's the safest choice. Follow Jesus. Jesus.